Here we're here to study and uh, involve ourselves in looking into uh, the Dake Study Bible. Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. We thank you that we know that your compassions are new every morning. Your mercies are new. Great is your faithfulness. Our Father, we pray that uh, as there are various classes meeting now, that you'll bless uh, the instructors and bless those who, who listen and who are learning. And we pray, our Father, that you would just help us to sharpen up, uh, to uh, be in tune with you first, and then uh, to know your word and to be better able to defend our faith. Bless us in this hour. May it be profitable. May we take something away. Uh, that we can use, use for you and for the kingdom of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned uh, in my plenary session, there are spiritual dangers everywhere, and there is deception everywhere. Uh, we know that uh, spiritual dangers can lurk anywhere, uh, and unfortunately it can lurk even in the pages of a study Bible. Between the covers of a study Bible, there can be huge dangers. We're going to think in the time that we have about the Dake's Annotated Reference Bible. It was first published in 1963. We have a uh, copy here of 68 edition, and we have also the 1998, the new edition, um, still using the King James Version. And uh, an amazing thing on the front cover, it says preserving the truth. And yet it does more to destroy truth uh, than any single study Bible I know, including the New World Translation. Uh, it is a very dangerous, dangerous study tool. I, in fact, I call it in the article that we did back in 92, and that will be available to you. There was a, an article in 92 and then a later one in 94 uh, I called it the vacuum Bible because it sucks up so much heresy and picks up so much misinformation and false teaching. I have never seen so much heresy in one place. Charisma Magazine, back in January of 1988, uh, mentioned the fact that they sell about 30,000 copies of a Dake's Bible every year, which means that to date then, since its first publication, there are probably in excess of three-quarter of a million of these sitting in American homes, sitting in homes across the U.S. Uh, all of that poison just sitting in a home for anyone to pick up. Now, you say there are three-quarters of a million of these in American homes, but think of the exposure to families that have three and four children and five children, uh, the exposure of danger, the, the, you know, the, the numbers that are exposed to the heresies in this Bible. Uh, exceed millions of people. Now, I think that few people know uh, of the dangers and know that the teachings in the Dake Bible uh, run the gamut from being quirky to very strange to cultic and to heretical. Uh, few people know that because it's being advertised as the Pentecostal study Bible. So most Pentecostals unfortunately, think it's safe because it's being advertised as being for them. That's because Dake was a Pentecostal. 
But there's always a danger, isn't there, when a man, one man, um, without the safety of others, without the safety of a multitude of counselors that Proverbs talks about again and again, without that safety factor, a one-man translation, a one-man show. There is a big danger in that. The Christian Research Institute said about the Dake Bible, and I'm quoting, with regard to Dake's annotated reference Bible, the best information we can give you in the absence of already prepared material, and I was shocked because there were no countercult ministries doing anything to research this study Bible. Uh, the, the, the amount of information that was available uh, it just was a few pages here and there from different countercult organizations. And this is all that uh, CRI had to say, although they didn't, uh, uh, they didn't help the cause for Dake at all. But they said, um, the Dake Annotated Reference Bible, the best information we can give you in the absence of already prepared material is Dr. Walter Martin's basic opinion on the matter. Dake has assembled a body of largely unscholarly materials to serve as references, and that's all that they said. So there was really a paucity of material available for uh, people to get information or find help regarding this um, particular Bible. I have the privilege of uh, teaching church history in, a, in an evening adult Bible institute uh, up our way. It's called Central Jersey Bible Institute. I've been doing that for uh, about 32 years. And uh, I, I've learned so much. You learn from teaching. I hope all of you do some teaching because you really learn from, from teaching. You, you really become a learner. And so I've learned a lot in having to uh, study and, and, and represent material. And I always find that it's very interesting uh, to look at the people uh, in, in church history. Often we think of dates and events and it's kind of a dry, dusty subject. But if we start looking at people, it becomes very intriguing. And we get another dimension, another aspect of church history as we look at people. And it is always helpful to know what went before. I mean, that seems to be a rule of life. We need to know what went before. Uh, I think of a pastor who went to visit one of the uh, uh, oldest members of the congregation. She was a charter member of his church, and she was, I think, 99 years of age. And he went to visit her in a uh, nursing home. And as he sat by her bed... He noticed that by the side of the bed on the nightstand was a, a, a big bowl of uh, raisins. He loved raisins. So as they talked away and talked away, uh, he began to uh, munch on the raisins, you know, and, and pretty soon time flew by and uh, all of a sudden he realized he'd eaten all the raisins. So he said to her, he said, gee, Granny, I'm really, really sorry. You know, I, I've been sitting here and time's flown by and I've eaten all your raisins and I'll, I'll, when I come back, I'll bring a, a box or a bag of raisins for you. She says, oh, that's okay. She says, I already sucked the chocolate off him anyway. <laughs> now, had he known what had gone on before, it would have changed his perspective a little bit, don't you think? He would have looked at things differently. And I think it's that way with church history. If we don't understand our roots and a lot about what went on before, it, it may, uh, it, it may jaundice us in one way or another and cause us to come up with faulty conclusions. So the first thing I want to look at is Dake the man, and then I want to look at Dake's message. Uh, just those two main points. But let's spend just a, a little bit of time on Dake the man. Now, his full name was Finus Jennings Dake. Finus Jennings Dake. He was born in 1902, and he died in 1987. So our math tells us that he was 85 when he died. His son, Finus Jr., um, says that it took Dake seven years of constant work 
to complete the 35,000 notes. You could spend 10 lifetimes in, in, in trying to research this book because it's got 35,000 notes. What Finus Jr. does not tell people is that part of the work was done from prison. That is, that's been left out of the equation. But it helps us to know what went on before and uh, what goes into this. Uh, the annotated Bible is 1,400 pages, just to give you uh, kind of an idea of, uh, of the thing. Uh, it is a compilation of all Dake's views and all of Dake's doctrines. And as I said, uh, I have referred to it as the vacuum cleaner Bible because of so much heresy being picked up. Now, what was Dake's background? He was ordained as Assembly of God uh, in Texas. Under the Assembly of God Ministries, uh, he was ordained. He did evangelistic work in Oklahoma, then he moved to Zion, Illinois. But his fortunes declined when he got involved in a scandal with a 16-year-old girl. He's in his 30s, mid-30s at this time. But on May 27, 1936, the Chicago Daily Tribune, and we have all of these uh, newspapers um, on file, reported this, and I'm quoting, an indictment returned last February in Milwaukee char charges that on April 23rd of 1935, they took Emma Borelli, 16 years old, of Kenosha, from her hometown to East St. Louis for immoral purposes. Now, the following day, the newspaper reported that Dake, they said, registered at hotels in Waukegan, Bloomington, and East St. Louis with a girl under the name of Christian Anderson and wife. According to government investigators, he picked the girl up as she was hitchhiking and she and insisted, uh, she insisted, he said, that he drive her to East St. Louis where he was to deliver Bible lectures in nearby communities. They denied that any immoral action had taking, taken place, claiming, I did take her there, but there was no immorality involved. Later he would change his story and it becomes very Clinton-esque, as we'll see. Um, this is from the Chicago Daily Tribune of May 28th, 1936. Dake came to trial finally in 1937 and placed himself under the mercy of the court. And I'm again reading the, uh, the uh, newspaper reports. He entered a plea of guilty to the charge of violating the Mann Act. Now, the Mann Act is transporting a young person across a state line. He transported the 16-year-old girl across three state lines, as a matter of fact and uh, violating the Mann Act. He was sentenced to a six-month stay uh, in the House of Corrections in Milwaukee, uh, placed there for six months only because he, he pled down to a lesser charge. Now, Dake admitted to having petting parties with the girl, but denied any improper relations. <laughs> Have we heard that before? <laughs> the Waukegan News Sun reported he had been found guilty had he been found guilty by a trial jury, listen to this, Dake would have been subject to a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison, a federal prison, and a fine of $10,000 had he had to go before a jury and been found guilty, which he was guilty all over the place uh, because he admitted it. But he called his jail stay his vacation. And he said that what he would do during his incarceration was he would preach to prisoners and devote time to writing a commentary on the Bible. 
So it was born in his prison experience, uh, not like the Apostle Paul, however, out of a whole different context. It really does us good to know what goes on before, doesn't it? To help us to put things together. Now, the assembly of God, thank God, excommunicated him, severed relations with him, and later he then joined the church of God. But then, we don't know why. We, we have not been able to find out why he finally severed with the church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. It's just not clear how that union ended, but Dake became independent of any church. That is a big red flag. That ought to tell us something. So really, he was not ordained any longer. His uh, ordination had been revoked. He had been excommunicated. And that in itself uh, should have uh, warned people to stay away. Now, what is his general orientation? As I uh, spent months of study in this uh, Bible, I, I tried to get a general orientation. So here's the general orientation of, of, uh, of Finest Steak. Arminian which means generally uh, loss of salvation and you really got to do a lot of works to keep yourself saved. That's sort of the general orientation, Arminian. Dispensational, with a vengeance, strongly dispensational. In fact, he is so dispensational, we're going to see that uh, even in heaven there are certain things going on that separate one group from, uh, from another group because of his uh, commitment to a strong... Uh, overly done dispensational viewpoint. So he is Arminian, dispensational, Pentecostal, and Baptistic. That sums him up uh, altogether. Now, if that's all there was, there'd be no problem. If that's all there was. If he was just Arminian, dispensational, Pentecostal, Baptistic, there's a lot of people like that. Uh, any one of these or any combination thereof, there's just a lot of uh, well-accepted teachers that are like that. However, uh, that's not the problem. Uh, there are so many serious errors and false doctrines and heresies in his notes that he is unworthy of acceptance and unworthy of promotion in the Christian community. So that's briefly Dake the man. But now let's talk about Dake's message, his message. Now, it's very interesting... To, to remember the old cliche that birds of a feather flock together. Because one of the prime promoters and advocates of the Dake Bible uh, prior to the late 80s was none other than Jimmy Swagger. Jimmy Swagger said of Dake, I owe my Bible education to this man. I heard a man once say that Finest Jennings Dake was the greatest Bible scholar who ever lived. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I think not. So Jimmy Swaggart, of all people, uh, saying he's one of the finest Bible scholars who ever lived. Now, what Swaggart learned from Dake was not Orthodox Christianity, but a very strange view of the Trinity that we, in fact, call tritheism. Tritheism. That both Dake and Swaggart believed in three individual and separate gods. This is tritheism, or we could call it polytheism. In Michael Horton's book, The Agony of the Seed, and this is why I first picked up on this uh, prior to going to the, the Bible itself, Dake's Bible, uh, Horton says, and I quote, the final critical area of concern is the doctrine of the Trinity. It is basic to Orthodox Bible-believing Christianity. Nevertheless, the faith teachers, borrowing from Dake's annotated study Bible, 
deny it. Though he is not usually classed among the faith teachers, Jimmy Swaggart holds the unorthodox view of the Trinity, espoused, for example, by Kenneth Copeland. Jimmy Swaggart says, I believe in this divine Godhead. There are three separate and distinct persons, each having their own personal spirit body, personal soul and personal spirit. Many people conclude that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one and the same. Actually, they're not. The word one in the passage means only one in unity. You can think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three different persons, exactly as you would think of any three other people. Their oneness pertains strictly to their being one in purpose, design, and desire. That's an unorthodox view. Nowhere does he say they are one in nature or essence, but we've got three distinct people. We've got three separate gods. We've got tritheism, full-blown tritheism. And Horton says that this argument is the same argument that the Mormons use, that the JWs use against the Trinity. And this is being promoted in a Pentecostal study Bible. Dake took, uh, I'm sorry, Swagger took his statements almost verbatim from Dake's God's Plan for Man. This is Dake's theology book, and most of this has been incorporated in the study notes of the Dake Study Bible. This is God's Plan for Man. Oh, yeah, this is available all over the place. You get it through your ministry, right? Oh, yeah, I have it. Well, you, you have it on your book sales? No. But oh, you can get it I hate to give them money. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Buy it used. Yeah. You know what? Uh, you can go to Baker Book Bookhouse. They've got a huge uh, used book, book warehouse, Baker Books in Grand Rapids, and also Kriggles. And they've got websites. You go right to the used books, and sometimes you can get books like this for 3 and $4, $5. Uh, I've, I've been very successful in getting books through them. Another uh, faith healer that has picked up on, uh, on this whole thing is Benny Hinn. Exact same terminology. Exact same terminology where Benny took it to the ultimate extreme and started at one point in his church talking about nine of them, nine gods, each one having a separate soul, body, spirit, and so you end up with nine, somehow nine persons of the Trinity. And Dake also not only uh, subscribed to a uh, polytheism or a tritheism, but also was into process theology, which is horrendous. And we're going to just give you a little bit about what process theology is. Now, you, you should be very aware of this for one good reason. Baker Bookhouse, which heretofore has been orthodox and reformed and only published the best of books, has decided to go out on a limb. And in May, uh, they are publishing a book by Greg Boyd promoting full-blown process theology, Boyd claiming that God does not know the future, that he is limited, that he is learning. And uh, as a result of that, the Reformed Baptist movement is, is, is starting to split over this issue because he is a professor at a Reformed Baptist seminary, and the seminary has decided to keep him saying that his view of God falls within the pale of orthodoxy. It is pathetic. It is sad. 
Uh, process theology really is the creation of Alfred North Whitehead. The Dictionary of Christianity in America calls Whitehead the key figure in process thought. The book defines process as empirical, considering experience only as the ultimate court of appeal for verifying their theories and for defining meaning. Whitehead's thesis is that an entity's relationships are part of its identity, therefore uh, God's knowledge of the world is part of his identity. As the world changes, God changes. As the world changes, God's foreknowledge changes. As God's knowledge changes, God himself must change. But that flies in the face of scriptures that say, I am the Lord, I change not. He knows the end from the beginning, right? He knows our thoughts. He knows us, Psalm 139 says, while we're in the womb, he knew us. He knows in Jeremiah the plans that he has for us. But process theology says, no, God is learning. Uh, Dr. Robert Morey, a number of years ago, anticipated the whole um, uh, evolving of uh, process theology and, and did a book way before it was, uh, before its time, really, it was ahead of things, called The Battle of the Gods. If you have not seen that, you might want to look that up. Uh, where he talks about process theology and shows, in no uncertain terms, the clear distinctions between the God of process and the God of the Bible. Now, in Whitehead's view and in Dake's view, God has to wait to see what we're going to do. He doesn't have a clue. And he may have to change his mind. He may have to redo his plans. And he may have to scurry around trying to gather all these billions of bits of information and all the crazy stuff we're doing and how we're changing. And, and so he's in a constant state of flux all the time trying to determine what he's going to do. That's the view of process. God has to wait to see what man is going to do. God is not omnipresent, uh, Dake said. He gets very confusing here. Um, but he says, like the Mormons, that God has a body that localizes him. You, some of the statements we're going to read are so bizarre and so crazy. God is only present in our thoughts, and therefore that kind of makes him omnipresent because he's in our thoughts. But what if he's not in our thoughts? Because he's not, certainly not in our thoughts all the time, is he? So that certainly doesn't make him omnipresent. Dake did not believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, said that uh, the Spirit had a body like the Father, like the Son, and therefore he was in us only in terms of unity and purpose. Again, going back to the same uh, wrong view we had of the Trinity, but the Spirit of God is just one in purpose with us. It's not in us in any sense, and our body's not really the temples of the Holy Spirit in that sense, but only in the sense of unity of purpose. That's all. Now, Orthodox Christians will reject these teachings. But Dake said, when you reject these teachings, you do it at your own peril. And here are his words on page 96 of God's Plan for Man. He warns us, any religion that teaches contrary to these and other fundamental doctrines of the Scripture is of the devil and is for the purpose of causing the soul to be damned in eternal hell. Believe what I believe, believe what I say, or you are damned. Now that is as cultic as you can possibly be or get. So there are errors in the doctrine of God. There are errors in the doctrine of Christ that we will see. There is a blatant, blatant denial of grace in his teachings of salvation by works, which we will see. 
and blatant racism. The interesting thing is that this Bible is purchased by many, many black folk, black Christians, the black Christian community. And isn't it interesting, uh, we had a critique uh, back in 92, and uh, Dake's uh, organization blew us off. In fact, Christianity Today picked up on this criticism. They went to press with it, and they were starting to tell people in their article about the, the Dake Bible and some of the errors. Well, um, the Dake organization uh, strong-armed Christianity Today and tried to paper over all of the, uh, the legal difficulties and the prison experience. They tried to paper over all the... Um, uh, the, the heresies, and they said to Christianity Today, you have no right to print this. All you did was take our detractors' uh, statements. You never came to us. It's all out of context. It's misquoted. It's wrong, and so on. And so Christianity Today, without even consulting us, they, they put a retraction in their next uh, month's issue and apologized to the Dake organization. So we wrote a follow-up article as a result of that, and... Um, a lot of these things were never answered. They said there were no errors in the Dake Bible. They said there was nothing to be corrected in the Dake Bible. However, what we've noticed in the new edition is that without saying anything, they're starting to correct just some of the errors, a few of them, which we'll show you in just a little bit. But uh, I thought there were no errors, but all of a sudden they're starting to change it a little bit internally within the Bible itself. Um, <clears throat> Now, uh, you might want to make a note that many of Dake's errors, doctrinal errors, are hermeneutical errors. When we talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about um, the science of interpretation, properly interpreting the Bible, uh, understanding it properly and interpreting it properly. And basically, his misunderstanding is rooted around a misunderstanding of anthropomorphisms. Does anyone know what anthropomorphisms are? Right? It's, it's a literary device that speaks of God in human terms to condescend to us, to stoop to our weakness and our misunderstanding, to help us. But isn't it interesting that at times God is likened to an animal? He roars out of Zion. Right? So is he an animal? No. We understand what's going on. It's very obvious. Anthropomorphisms, though, will speak of God in human terms to help us to understand God's character, God's attributes. They are not to be taken literally. How about in Psalm 91, where we are under the shadow of his wings? Does God have feathers? Is God all of a sudden a chicken? You know, so it's silly to even ask the questions. So, Dake wrote in his preface of symbolic language, of figurative language, or typical language, but he doesn't recognize it. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, interpret properly and has no understanding of hermeneutical principles or anthropomorphisms. Now, this is especially true in the doctrine of God, because we know that God will use human terms to explain himself in a way that we will understand and accommodate himself to us and how gracious he is. We remember that in John 4.24, Jesus said, God is a spirit. He is a spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Internally, externally, coming together, making our internal worship and our external worship all agree. We don't come like the Pharisees with the externals, without the internals. We come in spirit and in truth. We come 
worshipping him based on the word of God, the truth of the word of God, not making up some strange fire or some form of worship that disagrees with the scripture. Spirit and truth. We worship him in spirit and in truth. Numbers 13, 19. God is not a man. He is not a man that he should lie. But yes, he has given us self-disclosure in terms we can comprehend. God is a shield. Do we think that he becomes metal at some point? God is our light. Does he become an oil lamp, literally? No. But when we talk about God being a shield, for instance, it's comfort and security and protection that comes through when we somehow grasp just a tiny bit of the infinite, don't we? As we look at these things and our hearts are warmed and blessed. But here's what Dake writes. God has a personal spirit body, shape, form, image, and the likeness of a man. He has body parts, God does, such as back, hands, a heart, fingers, mouth, lips, tongue, feet, eyes, hair, head, face, arms, and loins. God has all these things. He has a bodily presence and goes from place to place in a body like other people. Sounds to me like God is just like me. <laughs> just like us. Dake makes God into our image and likeness and uh, calls God's omnipresence into question by these kinds of statements. Now, the it is so ridiculous and so silly. He wears clothes. He, Dake says, eats and he rests and he dwells in a city located on a material planet called heaven. Not Kolob, but heaven. <laughs> now, Hagen articulates this and Copeland, they articulate this. God is about six foot, hand span of nine inches, 200 pounds. Uh, this is Dake all over again. These guys don't have a clue about what they should be believing. Our God is immortal, invisible, omnipresent, and all-knowing. He cannot be localized. He cannot be contained. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. Now, Dake does tricks with that. He says, well, no man has seen God at any time, but... The word see simply means understand. No man has understood God. But I, I don't buy that because we, we can understand some things about God. We can understand what God has revealed to us. No man understands God. That's the opposite of the claim he makes. He claims we can understand him. That we can know that he's a man and a body on a planet. So he's not agreeing with his own words by saying, well, that simply means no man understands God because he makes God very understandable if you want to get into heretical doctrine. Marvin Vincent, in talking about no man has seen God, says God is first in the Greek order as emphatic. God has no man ever seen, Marvin Vincent says. Manifestations of God to the Old Testament saints were only partial. The seeing intended here is seeing of divine essence rather than the divine person, which is indicated by the absence of the article from God. The verb, the verb to see denotes a physical act. Uh, God may manifest his glory at times. 
uh, but we have never seen God. No one has seen God in his pure essence as God. He has designed to manifest himself through Christ. No man has seen God at any time, but the Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or manifested him, but God is a spirit. Dake also makes up words. He's coined the word omnibody, omnibody. Uh, on page 15, note N, he writes, God, as well as men and angels, is limited to one place as far as his body is concerned. Now, he knows that doesn't quite square with what Scripture says. Um, and so he goes on in very convoluted language uh, talking about things that I don't even understand. The doctrine of the omnipresence of God can be proved, but not his omnibody. Uh, in his body, he goes from place to place like other people. Dave said God is unlimited, yet limited, localized, yet omnipresent. And he tries to squeeze scripture into his logic rather than base his logic on the word of God. So he doesn't have a clue as to anthropomorphisms. If he did, he wouldn't have a problem uh, with his understanding of the scriptures. Now, it's interesting that in his notes on the book of Job, on page 547 of the Old Testament, he mentions anthropomorphisms. He mentions them, saying, however, that they are literal statements, if that makes any sense. So he doesn't really understand them at all, even though he mentions them. And uh, God was made in the image of man. And men were many gods. Does that, does that uh, sound like something very current? Listen to his statement on 548 of his Old Testament, on page 548 in his notes. Man, in reality, is simply a miniature of God in attributes and powers. And even if he didn't mean it like it sounds... It sounds like uh, the, the little God's theory that is being espoused by so many of the faith teachers. All right, so he has a totally unorthodox view of God. He skews the Trinity. Uh, he is a heretic in terms of tritheism, uh, in terms of polytheism. He is no better than a JW or a Mormon. Uh, if we accept this Dake Bible, we're going to have to apologize to those other people, I'm afraid. Uh, the second point I want to make is this Christology. Some years ago, Dr. Ironside said, if you want to really look at a group and get to the heart of things quickly, look at their Christology. What do they believe about Christ? Because Ironside believed that a cult will be always marked. It's good to study the marks of cults, the big picture. But one of the big marks is that they will be defective in their understanding of either his deity or his humanity. Now, there are about ten other marks that we could mention, uh, but that's, that's a big one. Errors in terms of deity or humanity. Now, he promoted the ancient heresy of adoptionism. Does anyone know what that is? Okay, you're going to learn a little bit then, hopefully. Baker's Dictionary of Theology says that adoptionism surfaced 150 years after the ascension of Christ, and it was an attempt to try to explain the two natures of Christ. It died very quickly. It never had a life for long, but it then revived in Spain in the ninth century to try to make Christianity more palatable to Islam. 
Now, adoptionism is the belief that Jesus did not become Christ until the baptism at the Jordan River at age 30. He then became the Christ. He was sort of the adopted Son of God, now the anointed of God, but certainly not anointed and not the Christ. He was only Jesus somehow, but not the Christ until that experience where the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he says this, Christos, anointed. This is page one. Gospel of Matthew, note A. Christos, the anointed, like the name of Jesus. Christos has no reference to deity, but to the humanity of the Son of God, who became the Christ, or the anointed one, 30 years after he was born to Mary. Now, I want you to just open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. I mean, any Sunday school kid should know this. Any Sunday school child should know this. We have our Christmas pageants, don't we? And these kids get up and they say these verses. And maybe we haven't caught the impact of it as it pertains to this heresy of adoptionism. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, this announcement, this announcement by the angel before the birth of Christ, 2.11 of Luke, this there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse uh, 26. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And what did he uh, visually see? The baby Jesus, the infant Jesus, the Lord's Christ. Matthew chapter 2. Even unbelievers knew this. Yes. How does he deal with those passages in the study Bible that he referenced? Jesus being called Christ is a Oh, no, no, no. No, it's ignored. It's just ignored. It leaves it out, yeah. Interesting, though, just remember now, there's nothing wrong with the Bible, the Dake Foundation said. Nothing wrong at all. Now, we just read where he became the Christ. But in the, the, the new edition, I, for easy reference, I copied a page rather than handle this uh, tome here. Now, he says, uh, in the new one, remember, there was nothing wrong. They didn't have to change anything. Christos, the anointed used in the New Testament, like the name of Jesus, has no reference to deity but to the humanity of God or the Son of God. Now, that was, sounds the same as the other, right? Who received the anointing of the Spirit 30 years after he was born of Mary. But however they say, God made him both Lord and Christ. Now, again, it's still confusing. God made him both Lord and Christ when? When? They've got it in the note having to do with his birth in Matthew. So it's still there, even though they try to uh, nuance it and paper over the language, they still haven't got it right. They don't know how to get it right. That's the sad thing. Uh, Matthew 2.4, uh, and, and again, uh, the um, birth event of Jesus. And uh, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, this is Herod, where the Christ was to be born where the Christ was. Even Herod knew this, where the Christ was to be born. 
So Herod wasn't an adoptionist. In the, in the Greek text, uh, where the Christ is being born. Is being born. Okay, great. That's good. That's real good. Uh, now, Jesus, uh, as far as his self-emptying in Luke 2.7, um, horrible, horrible. Uh, if you've heard of the heresy of kenosis, the kenosis heresy, where um, in church history, some were saying that Jesus so emptied himself uh, of deity and of everything that he was just like a fallible man. He didn't know what was up next, you know, and he was subject to the same superstitions and errors and misunderstandings of, of his culture and his people. He emptied himself of, of everything, you know, which is foolish. Um, there's nowhere in Philippians 2 that he divested himself of his deity. Uh, he may have humbled himself and became a servant, but flashes of that deity come through. In John 2, he knew what was in man. Uh, other times, he creates these mir- wonderful miracles and we see the, the power and the uh, creative aspect of Christ's deity. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see the glory of that deity kind of blast through in that experience. But Dake said in the notes on Isaiah 7, 14 through 16, that the Messiah was going to be born without knowledge enough to know, to refuse evil and choose the good. So here are errors even in the doctrine of the humanity of Christ which corrupt a proper view of Christ. So he's faulty on the doctrine of God. He is faulty on the doctrine of the Trinity. He is faulty on the doctrine of Christ. Dake went on to state that Jesus did, did not claim the attributes of God. This is in his New Testament, page 218. It seems that many years ago, I remember reading the statements by Paul Weirweil, uh, Way International saying, Jesus never claimed the attributes of God. I wonder if he got that from the Date Bible. The Gospel writers were constantly attributing the characteristics of God to Jesus. He is called God. He did the works of God. He takes the titles of God. He receives worship as God. Again and again and again. And as the Jews confront him in John 5, they know the impact of him saying that he was the Son of God. They said, he has made himself God. They, they didn't miss it. Now, let's talk about salvation. Uh, is he possibly right on the doctrine of salvation? His commentary, uh, John chapter 10, page 107. There are three things men must do and continue in in order to receive eternal life. Okay, so... I'll do the three things, you know. So, what's so bad? Three things. However, on Luke 8.15, Luke 8.15, listen, seven conditions to eternal life. Now the ante is up. Oh, it's seven now. I just got, you know, I just got used to three. Now we're going to seven. Yeah, we're upgrading. We're upgrading. Next level up. Luke 9.23, seven things one must do to be saved. Okay, so seven. Seven's a perfect number. Maybe he's right. But I get to page 100 of the New Testament. Note D. There are 23 conditions of eternal life. Oh, man. Give me a couple of weeks to get used to that. 23 conditions. But then I progress. I'm progressing. I'm doing really good. And I'm doing the 23 conditions. I get to... 
John 15, 9. There are 359 commandments that must be obeyed. Man, I'm, I'm giving up hope. But let's just suppose it's, okay, 359, maybe he had some special insights, some visitations from God. Who knows, this guy, I mean, he's written a Bible, he's got to know what he's saying, right? He's written a whole Bible. I get to page 313 of the New Testament. There are 1,050 commandments that, if obeyed, will bring rich rewards here and forever. If disobeyed, they will bring condemnation and eternal punishment. I have given up hope. I am lost. Hey, that might be a good thing. If I get lost, then I can get saved. I think you've got to get lost before you get saved, right? I had to get lost before I got saved because I didn't know I was lost. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? <laughs> just, just happened to have, have this with me here. Romans 8.1. You know what? It's not that he never says anything right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the confusion. Uh, he does occasionally say things that are right. Does he have a note? My goodness, does he have a note? Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ. Now, we have to go to note A. This is very confusing. Have you looked at this Bible? I mean, you've got to really be like a real scholar to do this. Uh, I'll tell you what. You can look at it after class. I don't want to spend the time waiting, waiting through that. All right. All right. Let's talk about the atonement. Dake... No, wait, let's talk about faith first, because then that leads us to the atonement. Um, Dake's view of faith is totally consistent with the faith prosperity teachers. Now, again, you've heard from me and you've heard last night from Craig that the word faith, the word pistuo, means trust. And it means trusting in God and his word. It's not faith in faith. It's not mindless faith. It's not having a hunch. It's not having a feeling. It's not wishing some things were so. It is having confidence in what God has revealed, faith in God and in the Word of God, God's Word. These are the only valid objects of trust that we should have, is faith in God and in His Word. He says on page 43 of his Old Testament, uh, what God will provide to faith, to our faith. Number one, salvation. Eh, That's okay, we're all right there. But two, prosperity. We will have prosperity. Healing and health. And then all your wants and your needs. All your wants and your needs. Now, I'm of the opinion that there are basically only three needs in life. Food, a shelter, right? And clothing. Everything else is a desire. And that's where we get in trouble. Everything else is a desire. Because we even make our good desires sometimes idols. We want even the good stuff so bad we'll sin to get it. That gets us in trouble. But there's no way that all our wants... Now, our needs will be met, but not our desires. Not every desire. And in the frustration of our desires, we grow. That's the good thing. But not all our wants. But he says all our wants will be met. A true Christian, he says... I guess I'm not a true Christian. A true Christian can get what he wants as well as what he needs. But what can the Christian expect? Go to Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time. Tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. 
However, all things are working together for good. And in all these things, the love of Christ is never diminished at all in any way. That's the one anchor. Circumstances come and go. People come and go. Things come and go. The love of Christ for me is constant. It's consistent. That's what doesn't change. And that's what I need. But you see, he doesn't really expound Romans 8 in that way. Now, his view then of the atonement is tied into this whole thing because what he teaches is that there is bodily healing in the atonement. And if you only said that, I'd I'd probably agree. Yeah, there's bodily healing in the atonement. The question is when? Because everything's in the atonement. Everything a Christian has is in the atonement. Bodily healing in the atonement just as forgiveness of sins. In other words, you can claim it by faith right now. And once you hook into that lie, you are doomed. Because you will be frustrated, you will be depressed, because as you age, you will not be totally healthy. You might beat the odds, you might have good genes and all, but you're going to start carrying some ailments and some frustrations and some difficulties in your body. Believe me. So Dake says, by faith, right now, we can have healing. Now, the ultimate healing of resurrection, we would not deny, is in the atonement. It's provided for by Christ's death. The atonement removes the effects of the curse, but not all at once. That is so elemental. That is so elemental. 1 Corinthians 15, this corruption must put on incorruption. This weakness must put on strength, right? This mortal body must put on immortality. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We wait for that. We have the first installment, the earnest, the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. And we have God's salvation. We have forgiveness full and free and complete. And we wait for the final installment. We have the down payment in the Holy Spirit. We wait for the final, final payment in the resurrected body. Dake writes, If sin, sickness, suffering, and death, and all the effects of sin were part of the curse, then they are all atoned for and removed. Now, as as a pastor, I'm going to tell my... See, these guys can spout all this nonsense off on television. But as a pastor, when I have to deal with grieving people, and I have to bury a baby or a teenager or an older person, and I have to go to people in the hospital that have severe ailments and operations and all, am I going to give them this kind of froth? Or am I going to try to share the love and comfort and the hope of the future that Christ offers them? So what he misunderstood was the teaching of the full extent of the curse not being lifted, the full extent, not being lifted until Christ returns and we are glorified. Because Revelation 21 tells us that it's not until that day when the tears will be wiped away. Right? And God is in there with us in our tears. He isn't saying, oh, you shouldn't cry. You shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't have any ailments. You shouldn't have any pain. That's not what he's saying. He's in there comforting us, crying with us. Sorrow, crying, pain cannot be eliminated by faith here and now. We wait until God ends it. Until then, we live in weak bodies of corruption with the down payment of the Spirit assuring us of the ultimate day of healing. Not that we can't pray for healing. 
I pray for healing. We pray for healing in our church. However, it's a mercy of God. If God is merciful, as Paul said, Epaphroditus was sick unto death and God had mercy on him. But Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're off infirmities. So we do both. But yes, God can heal if he's merciful. But we don't demand it. It's not on demand. But the sad thing and the deadly thing is that this kind of teaching is so insidious that a person may put off medical attention for something that's easily correctable. There is so much correctable today. It's incredible what is correctable. People may die prematurely in faith. They die in faith believing that death and the effects of the curse should have been lifted from them. And it wasn't. And they could have very easily corrected this with some easy medical remedy. You had a question or a comment? Oh, okay. You got, amen, right? <laughs> All right. Now, again, going to the issue of, of uh, the incredible number of um, uh, black community that buy into uh, the Dake Bible. And, and there wasn't even a ruffle. We didn't make a ruffle. They just told uh, Christianity Today that we were just misquoting and all that stuff. And, and then uh, Christianity Today, without consulting us or anything else, writes us, uh, we're sorry we did this. And we just listened to the detractors and we didn't, we didn't listen to Dake and whatever. And until uh, Fred Price... Fred Price came out with his large TV audience, Word Faith teacher Fred Price, who nailed Dake, the Dake Bible for the racism. And boy, he screamed, and Dake organization screamed because it began to cut into their sales. But let me tell you about Dake's racism. Israel's religious separation is pushed to such an extreme, and again, it's hermeneutics. He pushes that to such an extreme that he pushes the concepts onto racial identity and pushes the concept not only in current situations of the segregation of races, but he was a product of his time too, remember? This is long before the, the 60s. But he pushes it into the eternity. We're going to have to be segregated in eternity. We won't even be able to worship together. Now, listen, and this is only a couple of his notes. I mean, there are like, I don't know, 30 or 40 notes about the, the segregation. Actually, there are 30. This is on page 159 of the New Testament. And listen to this stuff. Number one, God wills all races to be as he made them. Any violation of God's original purpose manifests insubordination to him. In other words, here's a race, here's a race. You better just keep them all separated or you're going to be insubordinate to God. Two, God made everything to reproduce after its kind. Kind means type and color. Or he would have kept them all alike to begin with. The Dake, the Dake organization had the gall to say, this Bible is not racist. That's what they said. It is not racist. These people are lying about us. Four, I'm jumping now, four, miscegenation. Anybody know what that means? Mixing the races. Miscegenation means the mixture of races, especially the blacks and white races, and those of an outstanding type or color. The Bible even goes further than opposing this, Dake says. It is against different branches of the same stock intermarrying, such as Jews marrying other descendants of Abraham. In other words, a Jew should never marry an Arab and vice versa. I'll jump to 18. God commanded Israel to be segregated. Number 19. 
Jews recognized as separate people in all ages because of God's eternal choice and command. Equal rights in the gospel gives no right to break this command. 20. Segregation between Jews and all nations remains in eternity. So we got to you know, never mix with the Jews, not even in eternity. I guess we've got our separate compartments and our separate planets or separate places. I don't know. 21. All nations, all nations will remain segregated from one another in their own parts of heaven forever. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, he taught such quirky doctrines as Adam could fly to other planets, and Benny Hinn picked up on that. So, oh, do you know Adam could fly to other planets? And and Paul, really, oh Benny, you know, <laughs> you, he can do a good Benny Hinn imitation. <laughs> <laughs> now, 23, even in heaven, certain groups will not be allowed to worship together. Now, what did the Apostle Paul write? Again, go back to Sunday school. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. Dake's view can only be considered nonsense. It is grace, not race, that is important in the sight of God. So there are controversial interpretations. There are interpretations that are silly, interpretations that we could argue over. Did Jonah really die in the belly of the whale? He says yes. Jonah died, actually literally died, to be an absolute perfect type of Christ. But I say, what type is ever perfect? Is the high priest a perfect type of Christ? He was a man. Types are not perfect in the first place. Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. There's a lot of cults that push that. Uh, he resurrected on Saturday evening. Seventh-day Adventism, right? Really? What do they do with the fact that the Jews, the Jews believe that after six anyway on Saturday, it was the next day anyway? I mean... Um, now, he also wrote that... Uh, uh, there's going to be a dispensation of angels. He wasn't clear what he meant on that. And that angels rule various planets. Um, but he mentioned something very strange on page 3 in the Old Testament. Note X. Children will be born throughout eternity. That's a strange notion, isn't it? When Jesus said there wouldn't be giving in marriage, we wouldn't be given in marriage, there wouldn't be sexuality or procreation in eternity. Uh, it flies in the face of Matthew 22:30. Um, and here's another interesting thing he says, Mark 12:35. Resurrected saints will have no need of a marriage relationship to produce their own kind. So I guess we'll just be like the, um, like the uh, what is it, the Muslim concept of heaven where you just have all these women running around and all the men are uh, satisfying themselves in this kind of carnal heaven that's fed by rivers of wine. But um, no marriage relationship, but producing after our kind, he says. Uh, Cain was the mayor of the first city uh, in note four in the Old Testament, or page four, note O. Um, disease germs are 
demons. Of course, they're demons. Uh, Adam flying to planets and so on. Uh, let me, um, unless you have some questions, I have just one more issue that I'd like to mention. All right. Uh, one of Dake's directives, I believe, can be deadly. He comments on Matthew 4.2 about fasting. And he believes that like Jesus, we should fast for 40 days. Hunger always leaves after a few days of fasting and returns after a long fast of 40 days or when all the toxic poisons have been expelled from the body. The breath at this time becomes as sweet as a baby's. Any normal, healthy person can fast this long without any harm. Starvation only begins after hunger returns in such cases. One must use water in long fasts and break the fast gradually. Now, what Dake misses here is the rule of interpretation that asks how are these words used and how are they understood by the people that are being addressed. It's called usus loquendi, the setting, the cultural setting and what was being understood because Jesus was addressing people clearly with words they could understand. Now, in the, in the time of Jesus, the Jews fasted one day a week. That was it. That was the limit. He never insisted they fast any more than that. It was the Pharisees who thought they were super spiritual. And in Luke 18, the Pharisee goes into the temple and says, But Lord, I fast twice in a week. Oh, he was a big deal. He was doubling up. He was doing it better than the other Pharisees were doing it. However, we know in the Old Testament there were only four or five chosen fasts that were one-day fasts. And the fast always revolved around repentance. It had no other purpose. It had no other purpose but repentance. On the Day of Atonement, it was their major fast day. It was one day, but it was all centered around repentance and brokenness toward God. The Jewish fasts, however, did you know were never total? That the Jew in fasting, if he cut on the quantity of food, or rather than three meals had only two, it was called a fast. It was not required that they absolutely... Uh, move away from all food. That was not necessarily a fast. Now, in the land and the book, William Thompson, who spent many, many years in both Lebanon and Israel, it is a fantastic book. If you want to, it's seven, eight hundred pages. Read it. It's a classic. He lived in Beirut for many, many years, and he has a lot to offer about the manners and customs and culture of the people. It is so uh, fascinating, especially if you've been there. It's a compelling read. Uh, William Thompson landed the book and he says you may take this as a general canon of interpretation and he spent years among these people that any amount much less than usual means nothing in their dialect when they talk about eating nothing in their dialect it means much less than usual if you understand more by it you are misled in fact their ordinary fasting is only abstaining from certain kinds of food not from all food nor does the word convey any other idea to them at all. 
And to further verify this, look at uh, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Edersheim, Volume 1, and pages uh, 662 to 663, and Volume 2, page 291. So this 40-day fast could be a disaster. It could mean death to certain people. Jesus may have done it, but Jesus is Jesus. And uh, again, the fasts in the Bible were one-day affairs. There were five of them a year that were commanded. And my understanding of Colossians uh, today is that we are not to in any way ever enforce or command a fast on anyone else, and no one can enforce or command one on us. Let no man despise you, right? As you, if you, in the disregard of fasts and new moons and Sabbath days and holy days, no man can require or command a Christian to fast. And the further thing is, I don't even believe that fasting is for the New Testament anyway, because in the Gospels, they said to Jesus' disciples, or said to Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? They said, why, why should a, a bride fast when they got the bridegroom there? And uh, they'll fast when I'm taken away from them. And in his death and in his absence, they surely mourned, right, and sorrowed. But now isn't he with us? Don't we have the bridegroom with us? So I question that we should fast. But let's go further. If you want to fast, fine. But I'll tell you something. Do it like Jesus. You tell me you fast that you lost everything right there. Because Jesus said you must appear as not to fast. If you fast, nobody knows it. But most people do it because they want people to know it. Oh, I have all kinds of people. Oh, I fasted last week. Oh, yeah? <laughs> they lost all the blessing. They just got their reward, Jesus said. But I question the validity of fasting in the New Testament. The only time I find Paul mentioning it all in his sufferings and shipwreck is literally, I was starved. There was no food. It wasn't a fast at all. And uh, in that transition out of Judaism, too, uh, we can't get too confused because I think some of the things that they were doing in the book of Acts are not necessarily what we should be doing in the church because they were still worshiping in the temple. They were doing a lot of Jewish things that we don't now do. Anyway... No, I, I, I'd like to just go back to that verse. No, Paul says, I beat my body to bring it into submission. And Paul is not talking about fasting. It's never mentioned in the context. He's saying that I struggle with myself and I have to say no to myself. And it's like I have a boxing match with myself. You know, haven't you ever struggled? Yes, no, yes, no. I know God doesn't want me to, but... I mean, and then you say, against feeling, I don't care how bad I feel, I'm just going to walk away from that. That's beating your body. That's bringing it into subjection. That's subduing the sin nature. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, literally um, fighting himself to do what God wishes him to do. Otherwise, he doesn't want to be sort of uh, putting his ministry on a shelf in a way. You know? Yes? Don't get me started. <laughs> Don't get me started with Bill Bright. Um, and they're charging money for people to attend these things. It's another marketing scheme. It's another money-making scheme. If you could see the real estate holdings of Bill Bright, if you could see the fashion in which he lives, it, it's appalling. I read in... in I, I, I'm, I'm a minister of a church, and the church provides me a home and a small salary, and we, we get along. I'm not there for the money. First Peter says we can't be there for filthy lucre. And yet these men are making money on spiritual things. And I, I, I just think it's appalling. 
It's appalling. It's another fad. It's a new fad. We've run through the revivals. That hasn't done it. Now we're into the, the fasting and prayer thing. Uh, there will be a new fad. I don't know what's coming down the line. Bob and I talk about this. What's next? What's next? What's next? What do you think's next? Oh, well, it, it, I don't want to share prematurely. Oh. But what, <laughs> basically, the fasting that Bright is talking about is nothing more to rehash of what was taught in 1947 originally, which we have the entire entire out-of-print book now on a CD. It's called Atomic Power with God Through Prayer and Fasting. Franklin Hall. Franklin Hall. One of the four, actually one of the fountainheads of the Latter Rain movement, which explains the mess we're in today. And, and if you want Latter Rain articles, PFO has them. We've done a recent... On 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 oh, they're on the Bill Bright? They're begging for money to go. Well, no, he's just, he's, he's just rehashing what Bill Britton and Franklin Hall taught. And, and you fast long enough, you will enter into altered states. You will hear, see things that you've never been seen before. You get a baby's breath. church fasting all the time for weeks. You get a baby's breath. I depend on mints. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know what? We're that's about it. We're just about out of time. Any further questions? Yeah. I was going to say, as far as uh, another guy that really endorsed Dake, uh, who passed away, also was Lester Summerall in his book God's Pioneers of Faith. He has a whole chapter on Dake, and he knew Dake personally. And he said he'd come and he would have just be sitting in a desk with hundreds of books, you know, three and four feet tall around him, writing his his stuff. He thought he was just this great scholar. We yeah we. Um, uh, tried to find out what his sources were, and they're not so obvious, but uh, he never gives credit to anybody, but he drew largely from the writings of Adam Clark. Clark was on track. He was uh, a Methodist, a very Arminian, loss of salvation, but most of what, uh, he was the direct successor of Wesley in the 1700s. What he said, most of what he said was really good, Clark, uh, apart from s some of those things. But he quoted in some of his notes, we found verbatim, from Adam Clark, never giving credit, but whole quotes just lifted from Adam Clark. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, observation that he had all these books, but he didn't know how to properly discern or right. what to pick and choose right. in, in proper ways. He just grabbed from everywhere, didn't he? Yeah, he was the pastor at Zion, Illinois. He was the pastor at Dowie's church till they, they, the thing with the young girl. The interesting right. thing is that, that his church stood with him and paid all his yeah. legal fees and accepted him back in after he was released from jail. No repentance, no nothing. Just this whitewashing of, you know, I, I didn't do it, you know. Um, let me mention, um, there is the article that we did in uh, 92 uh, called the Pentecostal Study Bible. Why hasn't anyone said anything about the dangers of the Dake Bible? Then we did a follow-up article after uh, Dake said there was nothing wrong with the Bible, the Christianity Today thing. And in our um, 94, October, December 94, we had a, a lead article on Rodney Brown because the holy laughter was just breaking, you know. We're on the other end of that. That's kind of passing out of, out of vogue now. And in that, we did uh, an article called Smoke and Mirrors about Dake's Bible and the Christianity Today thing. So you might want to get those and uh, give you more information. Did Bible change on their racial things in the latest edition? What they've done in the latest edition is they start to cut some of the more offensive language out. And I would, I would guess as they go piece by piece, eventually it won't even be in there. But they'll not admit that they're doing that. Right. Yeah. The lady asked earlier where she could get a copy of the God's Plan for Man. Or whatever. God's Plan for Man, yeah. 
in the St. Louis area, just down the highway, there's the United Pentecostal Publishing House uh, between Lindbergh and, and uh, Graham Road. Okay. You're looking at me, I'm from New Jersey. Uh, yeah, they, they, they have it there, believe me. You don't want to buy it, you go buy it. But, but that's full price. Yeah, full price. I just have one question. When you talked about, you said that you give the idea that Jonah actually died in the whale, and so he can be perfect like Christ? Perfect type, yeah. Perfect type? Yeah. Well, you sure had a bad attitude even after he got bothered and died in the whale. <laughs> he was angry, I know. I know. That's where the type ends. Yeah. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.